Amy Webb's life changed in unexpected ways when her daughter was born with disabilities. Like every mother, she wants her child to grow up experiencing all the things a child should, playing on a playground with friends, exploring a museum, going on a family vacation. She learned, though, that not every experience is created with accessibility in mind, and that even interactions with friends can be a challenge. So she wrote a children's book to help other parents approach the topic with their kids. But you usually don't sit down with your child in front of the computer to, like, have a lesson on something. And so, you know, that realization, too, that, like, a children's book is so accessible to kids, right? It is, that is, they can hold it in their hands. They can look and relook at the pictures. We talk about her experiences as the parent of a child with disabilities and how legislation such as the Americans with Disabilities Act can make profound differences in citizens' lives. This is The Strategist, presented by the George W. Bush Presidential Center. Today's guest is Amy Webb, author of When Charlie Met Emma and Awesomely Emma, A Charlie and Emma Story. When Charlie Met Emma is on the 2021 Laura Bush book list for kids, and we're really thrilled to have her. Good morning, Amy. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. And our co-host is once again Ann Wicks, the Ann Kimball Johnson, Director of the Education Reform Initiative at the Bush Institute. Good morning, Ann. Hi, Andrew. So, Amy, could you start by telling us a little bit about When Charlie Met Emma and the inspiration for the story? And let, let's, get, let's get set on, on this before we really dive into it. Yeah, sure. So, When Charlie Met Emma is a story about a little boy who is at the park one day with his mom, and then he sees a girl who is really different. So, to, to back up a little bit, Charlie himself sometimes feels different, right? Like we all do. And his mom has this little saying she teaches him, different isn't weird, sad, bad, or strange. Different is different, and different is okay. Well, when Charlie gets to the park, he sees a girl who doesn't have any hands. She's born with um, limb differences. She's also a wheelchair user. And he's like, whoa, 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 this is really different. Like, what is going on here? Um, and then the story kind of walks through uh you know, how he handles it with his mom, how, you know, when he kind of says the thing out loud that often kids say when they see someone who is um, really different than them, like he, he voices that, you know, loudly and vocally. And his mom is like, oh gosh, you know, and she has this choice to make, like, what do I do? And so she, she gets down and she's like, Hey, you remember what I taught you about people who are different? Um, And then they meet, he meets this little girl, her name's Emma. They find out they have a lot in common and, you know, really at the heart of it, it's a story about friendship and inclusion. And my, so I have three daughters myself and my middle daughter is um, the character that Emma is based off of. So to clear confusion for some people, some people think my daughter is Emma and she is not Emma. That's not her real name. And I, and just, you know, uh, I actually don't use her real name in um, online in my blog or, or on my Instagram. So Online, my daughter is known as Lamp, which is definitely not her real name. Um, <laughs> right? It's like I don't want people to know her real name, but I also don't want them to think I named my daughter Lamp. Um, <laughs> but she, but Emma, you know, but she ser- shares a lot of similarities as Emma. And and when people say, "Oh, did, you know, did you have an experience like that?" Is Charlie a real boy? And I and I've said Charlie is dozens of kids we have met over the years. We've had lots of Charlies in our life. Um, which is to say really sweet, well-meaning kids who simply didn't know any better and had never um, met someone with a physical disability or someone their age. 
um, with that disability. And so this, this book was initially meant to help, uh, well, well, it was meant for a lot of things. It was meant to give representation to kids who are disabled in children's literature um, because my daughter had never seen anyone like her in a book before or in the media. And we know that representation um, matters. And then it was also meant as a way to help families and, and kids know what to do to navigate when they do meet someone who's different in the world around them and they've, they've never encountered this difference. Um, that being said, the kind of super secret you know, trick of the book is that if you read this book with your kids beforehand, you don't really have that situation in real life because you've already talked about disability. You've already introduced that into their lives. They won't be so caught off guard. They'll have a point of reference. What I... Th- what really struck me when I was reading the book was that as an adult, I feel like I learned a lot from the book that I, I realized that I don't really know how to handle situations that make me a little uncomfortable sometimes because it's not, it's not the, the usual day to day. And, and yeah. I realized boy, I, I probably would have, I, I believe it's an awesomely Emma when, when Charlie wants to push Emma's wheelchair and, and do things for her. It's like, Oh, I, that would have been me. I told, I completely would have done yeah. that and not realized sure. that, um, the lessons from this book, because they, I never got them as a kid. Yeah, and, and you know, and that, and that was also very purposeful. Is I, as much as I wanted kids to read this book, I wanted parents to read it as well, because, <laughs> you know, what what typically would happen at the playground is the shush and walk away. Mm-hmm. Um, kids say something, parents are mortified, they don't know what to do, and they don't know how to handle it, and they shush their kid and walk away. And that wasn't based on just our experience, um, because I on my blog for you know, I want to say eight years, I interviewed other families and other individuals with disabilities. And when I would ask, you know, how do you want people to respond to your child, um, whether you're, it's in public or friends and family? And that was the question that was universally answered the most, you know, the same. Um, that's a very clunky sentence. But, you know, typically people said, just don't shush your child and walk away. Mm-hmm. And so I knew that it wasn't just our experience. It was a really common experience because when they did that, they were, you know, you reinforce that other mentality, that mentality that kids with disabilities are uh, too different, too strange, too this or that. And, and even though it's, it can be uncomfortable for the parents or the kids to kind of just stay and get over that moment, um, it's not uncomfortable for us. Like, guess what? Like, I know she doesn't have a hand. Like, I know she's disabled. It's not your son, as smart as he is, did not inform us of that. And so, um, you know, it, it, it was, and it was a way to let people know, like, we're comfortable with disability. It's okay. I mean, I loved it because I, I, I read this last night. My son is six, he would say six and a half, of course. Um, and we read this book together. And I remember thinking, oh, I was so grateful because I do have kind of a frame of reference now if, yeah. for us if we encounter that situation. So I'm in, I was feeling very grateful to you for writing it. Um, because it's very, it's very simple and clear, but his, I was wondering what stood out to him. And there was, he told me he really wanted to talk about the use of how you phrased, um, weird, calling someone weird is a rude word. And he totally got that. Like, oh, I know what that means to be rude. And we talked about the difference between saying something is weird and saying something is different. And then he was talking about ways he thought he was different. And so it was a really, I thought the language you used on that was really accessible for kids. He totally got that immediately, the difference between weird and different and that, you know, that, what that looked like. And he also loved, you have a section in there where you talk about 
some of the different things. Emma uses a wheelchair, but you there's a, a beautiful illustration of, I think, a little girl with an oxygen tank, mm-hmm. someone who's blind with a cane, yeah. and he wanted to know about the tools that people yeah. were using, different tools that we were using. And he, he was really curious about why blind people use canes. And it would never have occurred to me to talk to him about that, but we spent a little time talking about that and how people use different things. And his grandfather uses a cane and a walker. And so we were kind of talking about how people use different things at different times. And so I think it, the, the illustrations in your text gave us a lot of places to go when I asked him what he was curious about. And um, I think people, parents, when they read this with their kids, could have really interesting conversations. It gives kids a lot of places to, to ask questions and to think. So I, I thought it was just lovely how you structured it and really a fun, a fun read to have with my son. So thank you. Oh, thank you. That, that means so much to me. And and honestly, that's really what I wanted. I just, I knew, you know, so as I said, I did these interviews for years and years and I would think, and obviously, you know, adults are reading my blog. Right. And I would kind of give these tips of how to talk to your kids about disability. Um, but also like to realize most parents aren't going to sit down and be like, Hey guys, we need to have the disability talk today. You know, that just wasn't a natural thing. So, you know, and occasionally people would say, Oh, I shared this, you know, spotlight, but you usually don't sit down with your child in front of the computer to like have a lesson on something. And so, you know, that realization too, that like a children's book is so accessible to kids, right? It is, that is, they can hold it in their hands. They can look and relook at the pictures. And that was something that I wanted to, to give kids that opportunity um, to stare, if you will, at a character in a book that they could just take their time processing so that again, when, when they meet someone in real life that, um, you know, that they're, that they're able to get past the, that a lot sooner that they're like, we've talked about this. We've, Oh, we've had this conversation of this is, yeah, this is a disability or this is, this is one of these differences we've talked about. So thank you. I just, I, I appreciate that so much. And I think that that's the biggest thing that people tell me they get from it is just, they had a really good conversation with their kids. Mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about the next book in the series, which um, we also, Andrew and I also read. So we're, we're sort of Amy Webb groupies reading your, <laughs> reading your books. But in Awesomely Emma, they go on a little adventure. I'm wondering if you could tell a little bit about the adventure that the kids go on, because there's a, a part of it at the end I really loved and I wanted to ask you about. Oh, okay. Yeah. So in Awesomely Emma, they, um, now we have this, Charlie and Emma are like an established friendship, right? And they are at school together and they're going on a class field trip and they're going to the art museum. And when they get there and, you know, everyone's really excited. And uh, when they get there, they get to the front of the museum and there's stairs, there's no ramp. And the teacher says, okay, Emma, we're going to have to go around back. That's where the ramp is. We'll meet your friends inside. And it, you know, really bums Emma out to be separated from her friends to kind of have this, uh, this frustrating moment where she's doesn't have equitable access to the museum, we'll say. And then she gets inside and she's like, okay, it's cool again. She's really excited because Emma's an artist. We, we established it at the beginning of the book. She's really into art. She's excited to see her favorite artist, Matisse, who is also a wheelchair user. Um, and then when they get inside though, Charlie, because he kind of witnessed this little moment of like, Oh, she can't, she can't get in. And he has this moment of, of pity um, which we sometimes think is empathy and empathy and pity is a really fine line I've learned in the disability community. And so he's like, I feel so super bad for her. I'm going to go the extra mile and do all these nice things for Emma. 
And so he starts to try to like drive her wheelchair for her and, you know, or push her around. And she's like, Oh my gosh, don't do that. Don't grab my wheelchair. Um, he, he takes her lunch out of her bag for her without asking. And then he tries to help her out of her wheelchair when she's getting down. And that's when she kind of like snaps and I was like, well, what are you doing? And, and they have this conversation where he's like, I was trying to help. Like I felt so bad about you know, the situation earlier. And she's like, dude, you're not helping. <laughs> like you're making it worse. You're making me feel small. And then, um, and then, you know, at the end she's like, Oh, well, I can tell you how, how you, if you want to help, here's how we can really help. And then I don't know if I should give away the end of the book or not. What do you think? Well, the part I loved at the end is that <laughs> you could have, there was a lot of story about how they have that moment and Emma and Charlie learn from each other. Yeah. But I love because you gave the kids a little agency, which I always love yeah. in a children's story. When you, know, you think about the world of a child, you're always told what to do and there's lots of rules. Someone's always in charge of you and it can feel hard to have agency moments of agency. And you created a moment of agency at the end for the kids who wanted to, to solve for the ramp, do you want to tell a little bit about what they ended up doing at the end of the book? Yeah. So what, so what they do is that, you know, Emma's like, here's how you can help. And she writes a letter and they end up writing a letter to the, the museum and everyone signs it, including the teacher. And then a couple weeks later, they get a letter back from the museum saying, oh my gosh, you're right. Our museum should be a place where everyone, you know, everyone can have equal access and we're going to start building a ramp at the front of the museum right away. And um, so, you know, for me, it was about advocacy. It was about helping people understand the difference between um, there's the social model of disability and there's the medical model of disability. So the medical model of disability was kind of like the old model of disability, which says your body is wrong. Your body needs to be fixed. Let's do everything we can to fix your body to make it, you know, like everyone else's body. Where the social model of disability says actually there's something wrong with your body. All bodies are different. All bodies come in all different shapes and sizes. Uh, society needs to conform more to all bodies and we need to make society more accessible. So it was also trying to teach people the difference between, um, between understanding that bodies aren't the problem, accessibility or the lack mm -hmm. of access is the problem. Um, and then how, and then, you know, the difference between like opening a door for someone versus like fighting for that equitable access, that is the difference. It's kind of like the teach a man to fish or, you know, or like give him a fish. And I think it's a very similar line of thinking of, of there's the small, like one time thing could do to help, or there's like the bigger push for, for access that we all need. I always loved it. Cause I feel like kids too, there's no, there's no sort of passion, like, kids when they understand injustice, yes. right? They were, they are relentless. My yeah. son will do that if he catches me not turning off the water when I'm brushing my teeth, mom, you are wasting water. Like yeah. he is ready to turn me in on that. And, and I love that they get sort of the passion of kids when they see injustice in the world, I think is quite ex exquisite, you know, and they, and how they express it. So I loved that they were, they sort of, they fought the good fight and then they yeah. got the ramp built. And to realize, I think for kids to, to realize you can make a difference. Kids can do yeah. this. You know, I had a teacher who to, uh, wrote me and said, I read this book to my classroom because we have a, a, a child and a student this year who's a wheelchair user. And right away, the kids noticed that, that some entrance or something wasn't accessible to their classroom. And she said, I've actually already put in, you know, 
something for the, for the district to try to get this change. But these kids were like, we need to write a letter. We need to do this. You know, they wanted to fight for that access for their, their peer. And I, I loved that because you're right. Kids, when they realize like I can make a difference and they see those things, they are all in. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Here, speaking of, of the, of the access here at the, at the Bush Institute, we're, we're firm believers that you know, we talk a lot about policy and we want to, change policy and, and affect positive change. But really, at the end of the day, policy is about people. And it's not just about these these words that lawmakers are banting back and forth. And a real example of that is the Americans with Disabilities Act, which has which now is, what, some 20, 30 years old? 30 years old, yeah. 30 years old. Um, that has made a real difference in a lot of people's lives. And while it is imperfect, and, and I'm sure you know, the, we're not... Bush Institute is an expert specific, specifically in that, but we, we do know that in general legislation has to evolve with, with time. And so can you talk some about how that act has, has impacted your life and your family and then what, what all needs to continue to evolve? Yeah, thank you. Um, so yeah, the ADA, it actually turned 30 last year, I remember, because it was shortly before Awesomely Emma came out and I was really excited to have those kind of coincide because Awesomely Emma is such a you know, focuses a lot on accessibility. Um, it affects our lives almost every day because at, at the heart of it, what the ADA is about is accessibility or access and about granting that access to every American, um, that equitable access. And, it's, and at the same time, so what kind of strikes me about it is at the same time, I think about how young it is. I think I was in seventh or eighth grade when it was passed. And, um, and so I didn't, you know, it didn't affect my life at the time. I didn't know or see any of these differences yet here I am 30 years later and, and access, you know, affects our lives every day. And, and I specifically last summer, my daughter turned 10 and I was thinking about when she was born, that was only 20 years old, you know? And, um, and so for us, you know, when you have a child who's a wheelchair user access, it's, it's everything. It's your home. It's your friends' homes. It's um, public places. It's parks. It's, it's everything. And so, um, you know, the ADA to have that standard for people to follow, it's it just, it's so important. And yet at the same time, like what you said, wh- where do we still need to go? Um, because I, I look back at, you know, when, when my daughter was born and I didn't have to, I didn't have to, there were things that I just didn't even have to fight for. I didn't have to fight for her to get into school. Right. I didn't have to fight for her, um, her needs to be met at school. Like they came to us and talked about what they needed. And it wasn't until I watched the movie Crip Camp. I don't know if you guys have seen that documentary. It's phenomenal. It was um, up for best Oscar this year in documentaries. And uh, it's all about the, the people who, you know, the, really the, the disability rights advocates and founders of the disability rights movement and how it started with their summer camp experience in the late sixties um, in upstate New York. And the same group of kids went on to be the people who, who started, uh, who started advocating for our rights. They were the ones who fought for section 504 to be passed, which um, was what basically allowed, allowed kids like my daughter to have access to schools because you know, uh, I don't know if you know the name Judy Human. She's one of the the people in the movie, um, and she's still alive. And she's this, you know, huge uh, disability rights av- av- activist. 
you know, she talks about she was a kid, she couldn't go to school and she didn't have that equitable access to school. She was in a wheelchair and she was considered a fire hazard. And so I think about her experience versus my daughter's experience. And so, you know, to, to realize one, who these people were to, to give them their proper thanks and do is huge to understand like the, the history of the disability rights. Um, I, I felt it was huge for me as a parent to, to be able to pay homage to them, to be able to respect what they have done for my daughter, because they fought fights that I just haven't even had to think about. So I'm able to write this book and bring this to the point, you know, to where it is, because the, there's so many hard roads were already paved, right? And so much work was already done that then it was time to talk about representation of those things. So, um, so anyway, you know, I have so many blessings because of their work with both Section 504, which then led to the ADA. Um, but at the same time, what I what I really hope people realize is that the ADA, as important as it is, really needs to be seen as like the bare minimum foundation to start with and not like the be all end all of where we end up at. Um, because you can have you can have things that that meet the ADA requirements that are still really uh, really inaccessible in, um, in reality. So where I see this most often is with playgrounds, um, school playgrounds can meet the, the minimum ADA requirements, which says that as long, you know, like a play structure, there are a lot of play structures we see now that have ramps and things that, that kids with, you know, that are wheelchair users and kids with limited mobility can get onto. But if a play structure simply has two, uh, pieces of equipment on there that can be reached by someone in a wheelchair. So for example, like the steering wheels we sometimes see on the bottom of a, of a playground, or even like the tic-tac-toe things, like those little games that they put on there, that's considered accessible. Um, So they don't actually have to meet that standard or sometimes they'll, they'll put like a piece of equipment off to the side that's accessible. And so really what you have there is like that segregation and not that integration of a, you know, of a playground. So you have like, here's, here's the playground for everyone, but there's the thing for the kids who are disabled to go over there. They can go over there and play, but everyone else is over here. So, so really I, I would love for people to realize that like the ADA should be the starting point that we have those conversations and not like the end goal of what, of what we reach for. I think that's a really important nuance, you know, especially if it's not, if we're not someone who has someone in our own family or within someone, you know, well, that is experiencing that day in and day out to have that sort of perspective and understanding about how policy applies yeah. um, in real life. That's great. And I, and I would say one more thing about that. Like when it comes to policy or um, building a playground, uh, what I will say is that if you don't have a person who's a member of the disability community, part of that, you know, if you're trying to build something for a specific community, but that community is not involved in building it, you're, you're going to get it wrong every time. And so to build an, if you truly want an inclusive playground, you have to include members of the disability community in that, that planning process. And then you will end up with something awesome. And, and I speak from personal experience on this one. <laughs> yes. But that's like a policy truism, right? If yeah. you're trying to design for others and thinking you know best, you're inevitably. Yeah. And I think always wrong. <laughs> like we saw with Charlie where he had, he had good intentions in trying to, to yes. push Emma's wheelchair, but that's not what Emma actually needed at that moment. Yeah, exactly. Amy, I wanted to ask you because obviously you, you kind of 
fell into this role of understanding yeah. and advocating for disability rights because of your daughter and as a mom. Yeah. But you're also, you're an artist, you have your, you have a, a broad range of things in your life. But tell us a little bit about um, what's next for you, what it's been like for you to kind of fall into and, and, and sort of adopt a role. You didn't, you know, when you were planning out your career, I'm sure as a young person, you didn't think I'm going to be a disability rights advocate and just yeah. sort of how that fits into, into your life as a whole and as an artist and as a professional and a mom. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. I feel like I, yeah, I definitely didn't see that, you know, um, from myself when I was growing up, but, you know, so I, I've been, I really was a stay at home mom for the past um, my oldest daughter is 14. So I guess the past 14 years, I really started as a stay at home mom and just needed something that was my own. And being a creative person, um, I graduated school at college in painting. So that was my background as fine art. And, um, but as much as I liked, and I love painting, it'll always be my first love. I think there was something that really came uh, through to writing and blogging. So blogging just became this way for me to connect with other moms um, for me to process, you know, just motherhood and the experience I was having in general. And we were a young family with, uh, my husband was in dental school. So, you know, we were living far away from, from friends and family. And so part of it too, was just recording our lives. And then when my middle daughter came along, um, and we were again in a new city, my husband was doing residency, um, in Cincinnati, which is where we live now. But at the time we were only there for two years and she was born like right in the middle of that, and that, that really became a way, again, just for me to get information to friends and family quickly as we, we found out when I was pregnant with her that she was going to have these differences. We didn't know what it meant. We didn't, you know, at first even know if, if she was going to live. And, um, and then it also just became a way for me to process things. And then after that, about a year after that, I realized how important writing had been to my journey. And I think that's really when things took a turn for me when I realized writing wasn't just about, um, you know, sharing my feelings, but like, I could really help other people. I don't know, like I could, like, I remember the first time I wrote a post where a lot of people told me it made them cry. And I was like, uh, good. Oh my gosh. Like, I just felt like I had this power. I was like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. And so I, you know, writing just kind of became something I started to do all the time. And then I opened up my platform and interviewed other parents and families with kids who are disabled. And that, that's really where the advocacy began. And I didn't realize it at the time. I just thought I have this idea. I'm just going to do this little thing. And I think when I look back on it, I feel like that was almost like a master's degree. You know, when you interview like 240 people, like I was, it was an education, you know, it was, it was just getting this really broad education in um, disability and people's journeys. And, and I think just, I love the human experience. And so this really just opened my eyes to like, just the vast way that we experience humanity in the world and, and life. And, and so it wasn't until after that. Um, and I'm really grateful I did that because that, I, I just don't think I could have written these books without having a lot of like a foundational understanding that I did. And then, and then I really got into, um, you know, first it was mostly just families that I was interviewing who had kids with disabilities, but then it was individuals who were disabled themselves. And I think once I started listening to disabled adults, that's when things really started to shift for me as well, because I started to hear the firsthand experiences. You know, it's one thing to, to be the parent of a child with a disability, but to be disabled yourself. And that's when I, you know, anyway, you know, so, so I think a big part of it just came for me for listening 
and then sharing. And, um, and then I just, and then, you know, like I said, I, I had this experience of like, we lived in this world of every time we went on in public, we knew that it was going to be, we were going to have to, you know, advocate or, you know, it was just a matter of like how, how many kids are going to, you know, come up to our daughter and stare, you know, or someone's going to, someone's going to grab her. I mean, we, there's always something there when she was really young, especially. And it was like that peer group of hers from age, like one to four or five. That's that really curious age group of children where, um, of course they don't know better. So you're trying to teach them, but anyway, that, so, so I think it was also like living that life of just every time we went out in public feeling like we had to sort of like put our armor on, you know, be the educators, kind of put a little bit of like a shield around her. And that's when the idea for the book came. And I thought, because I used to think, I wish I could just like carry a billboard in front of her, just like wherever we went and been like, this is how you talk to my daughter. Don't do this, do this, you know, and obviously you can't do that. And so the book kind of became my billboard and the book became yeah. a way to like, here's, you know, uh, because as much as I realized like kids don't know any better, like it's not their fault and they don't, what it was this realization very suddenly that it's the lack of representation is why they don't know any better because they don't see kids like her in their TV shows. They don't see kids like her in their Disney movies, in their children's books. And it, when, when that like clicked, that's when the light went off, you know, that like, Oh, they need something to be able to see her and other kids like her in the world around them before they see her in real life. Yeah, absolutely. They kids don't know better, but they can know better. Yeah, They're very they capable know of knowing better. And I think the what you've created is a really great tool yeah. for so many kids and families to to start yeah. to build their own understanding. And and I can imagine the feeling of having to like a trip to the grocery store is not a trip to the grocery store. It is like an armor up. It's a navigate. It's an advocate while you're getting bananas yeah. and cereal yeah. and bread. <laughs> so yeah. I don't know if that. I feel like I kind of deviated there from the question of like how, I mean, that's sort of my journey and where I'm at now. I, I feel like, you know, I really am trying to, I love the thing I love about children's book is even though I'm not the illustrator of this book, I just blending, like I always have to have something creative. So I get to do the writing. Um, and I actually know the illustrator. We, that's a whole story. She's so wonderful. She's someone that I met right after like a day or two after I had the idea for the book and thought I, I want her to illustrate the book. And it's kind of a miracle that she did end up getting to do that because you don't get to choose your illustrator typically when you're the author. Um, the that's something the publisher does, but it worked out. Um, and so yeah, so so just kind of blending anything I can do with creativity, advocacy, and and uh, and it, and for me, I think my big platform is becoming accessibility is is what excites me. Your blog is thislittlemiggy.com that you mentioned. And, uh, yeah. you know, I was reading it the other day. And the other thing that's eye-opening too is just, you, you know, not just having the armor up around when you go when you go out, but something like planning a family vacation just involves so much planning and foresight. And, and you know, reading the blog is really eye-opening in that regard. And, and you know, if for families, I think, boy, we're, we're a planning family. I think it's, it's you, haven't, you haven't really experienced planning until you've had to plan around <laughs> you know, and work around facilities that might not be yeah. really ready for a disabled, for disabled people or for, um, you know, for true accessibility. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's one thing I really try to share now a lot on, um, 
Instagram and my blog is just some of those daily realities. So people who aren't living this life can kind of understand the, the extra burden that is placed on families and certainly individuals um, when traveling. Um, I mean, a story that has been really big in the news lately is, um, are all the, the wheelchairs that get damaged by airlines every, yes. every day and every year. And I don't know if you guys have seen some of these stories as they've finally been making their way to, to the public forefront. Um, this is, I mean, this is such a huge problem. Our own family has our own story of our daughter, you know, getting to our vacation site and our wheelchair being brought to us off the plane with a joystick hanging by, you know, by a cord and it being rendered completely useless. And um, the airlines not knowing how to help, not knowing what to do. And, and, and again, I, you know, and just there, this is another situation where the solution needs to be found by going to the people in the disability community by saying how, what, help us build a better system, help us do this better because, um, and also just that they're not, I don't think that people, when you are a non-disabled person, I just don't think you can fully um, appreciate the impact of, of a damaged wheelchair. Um, you know, cause people will kind of compare it to a car or even, you know, even like, Oh, it's like breaking someone's legs. I'm like, yeah, but if you break someone's legs, like everyone would be freaking out and everyone would get like the yes. gravity of the situation. And like people do not get the gravity of the situation with, with a wheelchair. And they kind of assume like, it's, you know, that it's easy to get fixed. Again, they kind of equate that part with like the car, like we well, just take it to the dealership and get it fixed. They don't realize that every time you do that, you have to go through the insurance approvals. I mean, we once spent six, five to six months waiting for approval to get a new battery for a wheelchair. Uh. And so, you know, when the, and, and what happened with my daughter's wheelchair, the time it got damaged is like my husband, we missed our connecting flight um, because he had to like take an Uber to Home Depot, wherever we, our connecting flight was to like grab some tools to kind of like Jimmy rig it to fix it in the interim, you know, you know, to, just so it was usable for the next few days. And so you know, my husband's really handy. We can do that. Not everyone can do that. And so there, there's just the, and, and I think that it just happens all the time and it's just a lack of awareness and understanding. Um, and, the, and then, yes, like it, it's everything else too, like trying to book a, an Airbnb. Um, you know, it's not, it's not simple with, uh, even though they have filters for like accessible places. I recently did a whole Instagram stories where I showed people, I said, let's do this together. Let's look at I'm going to try to book an Airbnb that's accessible. Let me show you what this is actually like. And when you put the accessibility filters on, your choices go from like, you know, 30 or 40 down to one or two. And I said, but then I'm going to look at this house. I'm going to look at all the pictures and let's see if it really is accessible. And then you go through it and it's actually not accessible. People don't know what that term actually means sometimes. And so they'll put, they have like, you know, there, cause for me, if I can find one entry, that's zero clearance, meaning there's no steps, there's nothing yeah. to be able to get to an entry point, you know, in this house that I was showing people, like, not only is there not that there's like staircases to every single entry point. I'm not sure why these people mark this as accessible. <laughs> so just to have to go through, you know, that whole process every time, and you have to email people and say, you know, is this accessible? And what I mean by accessible is, are there any stairs to any entry points. And what I mean by that is like, please not even one step because my daughter's wheelchair is 350 pounds. We can't just like lift over one step. So like, I really truly need it to be zero entry. Can you please send me pictures? <laughs> like that's, yeah. you know, that's what you're going through every time you try to book a single place. 
Um, and then of course, once you get there, it's, it's, you know, the activities and stuff you do there. So yeah, it, I think that that is, um, yeah, anyway, it, that, that is a really big burden that, that can, uh, that's often on the, the shoulders of individual families and individuals who are disabled to, to figure out and, and to, you know, logistic, face the logistics of that every time. It's really helpful to hear. I mean, I'm, you know, the, you have the burden of explaining and sharing, right. You know, yeah. for the rest of us. So we're all benefiting from what you're the, what you're willing to to do in that regard. And it's um, so I'm, I'm mindful of not only are you doing the planning and dealing, but then you're also doing the, like the sharing with the rest of us to help us get yeah. on board. It's a really, it's an important thing to do, but it's, it's a big, it's a big task to take on yeah. to feel like I'm tired of explaining to people why this matters, you know, yeah. and I appreciate that you, you keep doing it because I think it's a, it's a really helpful piece of the story. And something we, we do, as Andrew mentioned, we think about that a lot here when we're talking about policy. Sometimes it's easy to get up in the, the sort of the weeds of the words and the policy words, but it's always really about people and sort of the dignity and freedom of people is what we want all of our, the, all the policy work that we do here, whether it's domestic issues or global issues about the dignity of people. And yeah. I think that's, it's, we're really glad to hear it hear your perspective on that through the eyes of your family. Yeah. Thank you. And I, I think that dignity is such an important word when discussing these things, hundred um, percent, you know, because going back to Austin Lee Emma, I think that's a part of uh, what Charlie was trying to do um, was not, you know, giving Emma any dignity, right. And any autonomy. And it, it, it you know, like she says, you were making me feel small. And so I think sometimes we have to realize that our efforts and um, our best intentions aren't, you know, often read that way to the people who are on the receiving end of that. So, you know, our, we often close with this, with this question here at the, at, as we run out of time. What are we not talking enough about as a nation that we should be talking about? And this can be something that we've talked about already or something that's completely on a different train of thought that's going through your head right now. Um. For me, it it all comes back to the word um, accessibility or access. I really think that we as I would love to see people really take that upon themselves in a more personal way of what what can I be doing to be able to grant more access to to people in the world? Um, you know, whether you are a business owner and and again, realizing that, just one step can be the difference between um, someone's access or not getting access. Uh, a friend of mine, her name is Rebecca Tausig. She's written a wonderful book called Sitting Pretty. She's a wheelchair user. She she once said, you know, when I see businesses that that don't have ramps or haven't considered access, she's like, it's it's almost like they put a no no disabled people allowed or disabled people not welcome here sign. And I think if you would never actually put that sign on your building but you don't have access, like, like, think about that, you know? Yeah. Because it, if you, if you would never put that by that sign on your building, that would horrify you to have that, your business, then you need to make sure that your business is actually accessible. Um, but also, also in terms of, you know, there, the ADA covers public access, right. But there's nothing that covers anything private. And so one thing that I've began to understood and again, this comes from listening to disabled adults is how much the lack of access can affect your personal life the older you get, um, how very few homes that aren't your own that you can enter into um, or, or 
how very few homes are available to you as a disabled person too. That's one thing that we've really come to understand uh, is I don't think, a, uh, as I've understood it in, in our experience, um, accessible homes rarely just exist on their own. Um, occasionally you have a house that does have zero entrance access point, but beyond that, like you're always having to modify something. And so again, if we could get people to think in terms of, um, I know the National Center for Independent Living, for example, has has this uh, this initiative called, called Visitability. And their idea is they really want contractors and everyone who builds a home to think about, is it visible for everyone? Meaning you have at least one um, entry point to your home that has a zero, zero clearance access. You have one bathroom on the main floor that could fit a, a wheelchair. It doesn't have to meet the quote, ADA guidelines, which is like a five foot turning radius, but if it can at least fit a wheelchair. And, um, and I believe the third one is something to do with like your, your light sockets being like 15 inches off the ground, because really people don't know that like, it's a totally arbitrary height where it is now. It's um, most light sockets, I guess they were like the height of like a hammer. And like Hmm. the olden days, they just kind of like would put a hammer against the wall, like that's where it goes. And so like to have them higher off the ground just makes it easier for, for really for everyone to reach. Um, and, and ideally if you can even a bedroom on your main floor. And so again, the idea being that, and to me, this is really the crux of all of it is that accessibility gives to everyone and it takes from no one. And when you look at accessibility and, and people often cite curb cuts as like this case study, um, you know, before, before curb cuts were a thing, uh, disabled people couldn't like go down, like go down sidewalks because like they wouldn't have a curb cut at the end to go down. And when, when people realize like, oh, we need to start putting those in every city, you know, cities everywhere. What they realize is like, oh, like this also helps moms with kids and strollers. This helps delivery people. This helps elderly people who might have a cane. And to realize that it wasn't just this one community, but like so many people benefit from accessibility. And I think if we could really get that, that across that, um, accessibility will making your home and your spaces more accessible will never take anything from you. Um, disability is, is a, is the one, uh, marginalized group that any of us could join at any time, whether temporarily or permanently. Um, if you ever have a broken leg, you know, for a short time, you would be so grateful to have, you know, access in your home. Or if you do have a child that ends up having a disability, um, or as the, the National Center for Independent Living points out that on average, people end up moving every seven years. So if you build a home that has that access, you're not just building it for you, but the people who come after you. And that when we build something for the people with the least amount of autonomy, we're gonna, it's going to include everyone. So I think if I could just, if there's one thing I wish we were talking about more, it, it's accessibility and how we could all be taking upon ourselves in a more personal way to make, to make the world more accessible. Amen to that. Amy, this was really eye-opening. Thank you so much for spending the time to, to tell us about this. And, and really, hopefully, I know it opened my eyes some more. I really never thought about the curb cut thing that you just mentioned. Like, that does help bicyclists and strollers. Yeah. It helps everybody. And, yeah. done, and it's, it's a fairly new thing. That it's, it's really right. educational. Thank you for, for enlightening us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Yes, I feel smarter. I do, too. I feel smarter. <laughs> you can you so uh, make sure to read... 
Amy's blog uh, at thislittlemiggy.com. When Charlie Met Emma and Awesomely Emma are available on Amazon and Apple Books and in bookstores everywhere. And Instagram, follow her there. Get those stories that she was talking about at, at thislittlemiggy on Instagram. Amy, thank you so much. Thank you guys so much. When Charlie Met Emma appears on Mrs. Laura Bush's reading list for kids. Check out the full list on the Laura Bush Foundation for America's Libraries website at www.bushcenter.org LBF. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Strategist. If you'd like to send us a note, follow us on Twitter at at the Bush Center or on Instagram at at the Bush Center. Thank you for listening. <laughs>